welcome everyone and welcome Jason for being our very first virtual guest speaker of the year. So let's just start with an introduction. So Jason, tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you um, to all of you for, for being here and for the organizers for, for having me, Bree and, and everyone else. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure and a true delight. Um, so my name is Jason Purcell. Uh, I am a writer and a bookshop owner here um, in Miskoshiwaskaigen Treaty 6, also known as Edmonton. And so I, uh, as we were kind of talking about earlier, I did uh, two degrees at the U of A. I did my bachelor's in comparative literature and I did my master's in English. And while I certainly was kind of working on um, building a creative life for myself during those, those years, I didn't actually start publishing or um, taking my creative writing as seriously until kind of the tail end of my uh, my master's degree. And so I think that what you have kind of created here, this, this community and this group is pretty um, remarkable because I don't remember having access to such a thing in my undergrad or even in my master's and having a community of, of people who are kind of on a very similar path as you and at similar stages. Um, I can't even begin to imagine how, um, how helpful that would have been to me, how generative, how those feelings of support and kind of camaraderie. So, um, so it's kind of a pleasure to sort of sit in and sneak in here and kind of pretend I'm, I'm one of you for a couple of hours. So I, I don't know, Brie, how you want to go about this. If you, um, if there are particular things that you want to talk about or not, um, I'll admit that like, as I kind of nodded to, I, I run a bookstore here in the city now called Glass Bookshop. And um, even though things have been, um, a lot of stores have been closed or we've been recommended to uh, keep our distance. I mean, the shop has been, really really busy with online deliveries and stuff so uh, i'm working like these 14 hour days and my mind feels like mush and so um and so i really hoped that this could be really really casual and i'm sure that some of you are probably in the same boat with learning remotely right now and taking classes in a in a way that you aren't um used to or maybe even none of us could have expected and and so maybe you're all kind of mushy brained with me here so uh, i hope you'll forgive me for not having a slideshow prepared or or anything but um yeah I, I would totally love to talk anything that interests you i i'm happy to delve into um and my answers as you can tell can be kind of long-winded so i'm sure that we'll uh, take up the time that is not a problem at all <laughs> i think it's it's fair to say that a few of us are more than a few of us are a little bit mushy brained as well um <laughs> no worries about the slideshow we were not expecting that of you um it's it's a busy is a busy time for everyone. No one wants to do extra work, extra work in college. Inconceivable, no man. Um, but you so you said that you had um, started taking like your creative writing like more seriously at the end of your master's. Was there something there that like flipped the switch for you or like got you more interested in working creatively? Well. I'd always kind of, uh, creativity has always sort of been the language that I use to uh, relate to other people and to also make sense of, of my own life. And so I've always kind of been a, a creative person, not to sound like, I've always been a creative person. I know how it sounds, but um, it's kind of been the thing that I go to first. I, I'm not that cerebral. I, I don't kind of get things at the ground level and these, like, I, I kind of have to think in these kind of conceptive sort of broad places. And so, um, 
this has looked all kinds of ways throughout my life. Like initially I thought I was going to be a pop star. Um, and I had this sort of like weird journey before my bachelor's where I, I was signed to a small record label and I put out an EP, but I was really unhappy with how it sounded. I felt like the people who were managing me were kind of trying to make me sound a particular way and it didn't sound like me. And I had this sort of like inner, um, I just had this sort of identity crisis where I was like, music, which is this thing that I, I go to first before anything else, where I go to sound like myself or where I go to make sense of myself didn't sound like me. And I really kind of veered what to me at that time felt like um, veering off track. Um, but it did lead me to to do a, a bachelor's in comparative literature. And I'd always also written um, poetry or, or short stories alongside writing music. Um, but I hadn't really considered that to be anything that I could do in a really serious way until I started to take my academic life a little bit more seriously. And so I did that BA in Complit and I um, took some time off and, I, and then I started my master's in English. Um, but along the way, what really changed things for me was um, I started to work at the Canadian Literature Centre at the U of A. I started off as a volunteer. I just kind of showed up one day and I, I was like, by the way, I'm your volunteer now. And I like, I didn't leave for seven years. I started as a volunteer and then they brought me on as an RA. And then um, after I finished my undergrad, I obviously couldn't be an RA anymore. So they gave me a, a they invented a position for me so that I could stay along. I stayed there and then into grad school, I, I stayed there as well. And what I did there is I um, organized literary events. I organized Brown Bay lunches or the Cries Lecture Series or whatever else. And I would fly writers from across Canada to Edmonton to, to give readings. And I developed, with some writers, I developed like what are now very close friendships. And from all the writers I learned, um, I learned a lot about what it meant to be a professional writer, what it meant to to be publishing widely or to be traveling and reading for folks. And uh, I kind of got this inside look at Canadian publishing that um, I didn't have before. And in having these conversations, I sort of felt as though um, as though this whole new world had opened to me where wherein, wherein these conversations that I was having in real time and in real life could be um, explored further on the page. And, and so I started to, to build these relationships. And like, I don't know if any of you feel this way, but you know, when you, it, you probably do, given that you're all here, this creative writing group, but when you're, when you create like a social group, a group of friends or even acquaintances who, um, who are all doing one thing, you kind of inevitably get pulled into it. And so as my friends, as I became friends with more and more writers, people who are publishing, it sort of became this, um, this inevitable part of my life that I would also be writing because people would be like, oh, well, what's your book about? And I would have to say, I don't have a book. What are you talking about? You're the writer. I flew you here. I'm not giving a reading. Um, but, you know, they planted the seed. And I was, uh, last night, for example, I was just recording, Glass Bookshop is launching a podcast pretty soon, and I was recording... Um, a conversation between Jay Simpson and Emily Riddle. And beforehand, Emily was talking about this chapbook that she's publishing in the next few months. And she said, like, you know, I was hanging out with Jay and another poet, Jess John, so much that I eventually started writing poetry. Poetry was not a genre that she really explored very much, but now here she is a few months later with a chapbook on the horizon. And like, 
you kind of get pulled into this uh, this community of, of like-minded folks who are undertaking a similar practice. And that is kind of what took it, helped me to take it seriously. Um, this is around this time that I befriended Matthew Stepanek, who is my um, co-conspirator with the bookshop and my business partner and uh, and a friend. And he uh, he is the editor of Glass Buffalo Magazine. And he published my first poem and he allowed me to take on the role of uh, interviews editor and like just these like this it really was a snowball effect wherein like my friends would inspire me they would expect things of me and I wanted to rise and meet them where they were you know it was very kind of it's really just about like acting on inspiration yeah I think it's that's really uplifting just like having a community can like pull you into um such a thing so like um I know you have one chapbook out and that's a place more hospitable um so tell us a little bit about that like how did how did that come to be um what was kind of like going through your mind as you're um writing it and publishing it because I did go to your reading um at the almanac before in the before time um, before times oh. yeah um and I heard a little bit about that and like it it just if you don't mind me saying like it it felt like very like like kind of like real and vulnerable and you felt like very honest with your poetry and with your audience so i was just if if you're comfortable speaking on it yeah. um well, thank you yeah tell, tell us a little bit about that sure well, i really appreciate that you were there in the first place and that you uh you've always been so kind and supportive and generous about my poetry and so i am very grateful to you brie um that project again, wasn't one that I really intended to, to um, undertake, but I was writing my master's thesis, which um, the, the project that I had proposed was a really conventional master's uh, thesis, a very traditional Canlet thesis. I was interested in looking at the work of Elizabeth Smart and Wilkinson and Sheila Watson and about their uh, private writing. So like their journals that were published later on in their lives or after death. And um, so that's the project that I had like proposed in getting into grad school. This is the one that I thought was expected of me, but like I just like couldn't do it. I got to the point after coursework um, in that year that I was meant to spend writing the thesis, I was like, I couldn't bring myself to do it. And um, I realized then that I needed to, uh, to change the direction of my thesis. And so I had started experiencing maybe two years before my, my master's degree, I'd started experiencing these kind of mysterious uh, health problems wherein my stomach would just kind of like swell up and it would be very painful. And I would go to the hospital and they'd be like, I don't know what it is, sorry, uh, good luck. Uh, and I would go and get all these tests and all the tests were saying like, mm, I don't know, it could be anything. Um, and so I figured that like maybe my master's thesis could be a way for me to make sense of, um, of illness and maybe kind of work with these theories of illness and wellness alongside other things that I was interested in, like queer desire and um, domestic spaces. And so I, I kind of proposed uh, to my supervisor that I instead do a creative slash theoretical thesis on these topics. And she said, I don't really get it. Um, so let's not, maybe you can write the thesis that you were supposed to write and then uh, you can write this later on, but I, it just didn't work out. So I found a new supervisor and I proposed it and she was immediately like, yeah, this is amazing, let's do it. So that's just an aside to let you know that the supervisor you think you're supposed to have may not always be the supervisor you were supposed to have. 
and it's okay to ditch one for another. Basically, I'm just giving you all preemptive permission to do that if you ever find yourself in a situation. It's perfectly normal to do, it happens all the time. They don't tell you that, but it does. Uh, so anyway, I started writing this um, creative theoretical thesis and I was interested in getting at the reality of being um, a chronically ill queer person in another way. I kind of felt like I was always coming up against this like, intellectual block where I was trying to write in a particular mode. I was trying to write either academically or in this kind of veiled fictive language, um, but neither was getting close enough to what it really was like. And so I was like, as an experiment for myself, as a way to push myself into a new kind of way of thinking, way of writing, I, I was like, what if I write about these exact same topics and themes, but I sort of uh, reject uh, academic language norms or even like traditional prose forms? Like what if I just kind of made a mess on the page and saw what came of it? Um, because I was really struggling to get beyond like what was true and toward what was real. I was really stuck on what was true. And I feel like poetry is a really great way to circumvent that. You can kind of move alongside or beneath things in um, less traditional ways. And so I ended up just having at the end of this degree, like a collection of poems that I wasn't anticipating having, but then I suddenly had, and I had managed to place a few of them in, in different journals that, because um, they just sort of, I guess, fit the call at the time. And, and all of these, this kind of accumulated into the realization that maybe I had something here and I showed it to a couple of friends and, and they said like, this is a, this is a chat book. It's just a chat book. You can publish it. Like, I don't know. I want to, maybe I'll go back and like also flag here that I don't know how many of you are astrology people, but I uh, am a Taurus sun, Aquarius moon and a Virgo rising. And I had my chart read by a friend of mine who is an astrologer. And he said the way that like my chart is working, that Virgo rising, what it, how it works in my life, sorry about the sirens. Um, the way that it works in my life is that like, I won't ever do anything until I feel like I have like earned the credentials or like gotten the permission to do it. So like not starting a creative writing life until I had like more or less finished a master's degree is because I felt like I didn't have the credentials yet. Like I was going to publish something and someone was going to come back at me and say like, what right do you have to write a poem? Who do you think you are? writing a poem like show me your degrees um and I really believed that like a very deep level and I I understand how kind of problematic that is and how that like I'm really internalizing the ways in which like the academy validates or invalidate invalidates particular voices and particular forms but I really bought into it at, at the time and um so all this to say I kind of came out with a bunch of poems and I it really took like a lot of people around me to say like maybe it's worth putting it out as a chapbook. And so I, I put together the manuscript. I, I picked one um, chapbook publisher who I really wanted to be published by and through their press in Toronto. And I sent it their way and they took it. It was really, after I let it out in the world, it sort of took on a life of its own. And I was no longer sort of like hoarding it, right? Like it was a real interesting lesson in, in like putting yourself out there, which I am not very good at doing. No, I think it's interesting how, like, like you said, that academia, like, values only certain things, and, like, there is, like, a structured hierarchy within, like, the world of literature, and, like, very much so as to what is valued and, and what is not, and 
I also appreciate you talking about um, astrology because, like, I I feel that myself. I'm a I'm a Pisces Sun and a Gemini Moon and a Virgo Rising, which means I have a lot of emotions and no way of expressing them. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I feel that. Um, and so, did you find like within kind of that time in academia because you know everyone kind of currently in the chat like whether we want to be or not are academics because we take part in the academic process um did you find like you were switching between like your academic hat and your creative hat or did you like how did you um blend the two or did you find you have to compartmentalize um or like did you have to reject kind of some of your academic teachings in favor of your more creative process or um, could you speak to that a little bit yeah what an interesting question um like i think i'll just kind of use this maybe as a therapeutic uh, moment i think that i can see the ways looking back that i really tried to be more of an academic than i perhaps am and i look back to less so in undergrad for me the stakes were not as high in undergrad but in grad school when you're in like a seminar room with like seven brilliant people the imposter syndrome is real and so i really i can i can look back on those moments and see the ways i was really trying to fit into what i thought um a grad student who may or may not go on into a phd and then who may not who may or may not go into a postdoc and then maybe you know looking in the far future, like maybe would end up working in academia. Like I, I could see that path. I knew what that path looked like and I knew what that performance looked like. And I really tried to embody it. And so I look back at like the papers that I wrote or the conferences papers that I gave or the projects that I was thinking that I would work on and they were fine, but they weren't at all enlivening to me. They weren't nourishing to me they didn't inspire or excite me like it, they really burned me out i was like very unhappy during grad school and um and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that i wasn't really honoring the voice that i had which was like one that maybe maybe is a little bit more um maybe that like communicates better in more creative terms and this is not to say that I regret um, grad school in any way or, or my academic writing or life, because in fact, a lot of that language and a lot of that way of thinking, like the theory that I, that I read or that I'm now, I feel equipped to read like on my own, like I can pick up any sort of book of theory and like I know that I'll be able to work my way through it. Um, all of these tools that I picked up in, in grad school and academia are tremendously useful to me. And I think that writing that thesis that I wrote was like the first time that I gave myself permission to like, to marry these kind of two worlds that I felt like I was in. And I knew I didn't belong in academia. Like, I don't think I'll ever get a PhD. If you see me in HC trying to get a PhD, like tell me to go. Um, but like, I think that there's a lot that I was, I could have worked with better. Like if I were to go back, if I were to like do a, a PhD, then I think, it would definitely be like a practice-led project because that's where um, that's where I'm comfortable and that's where I'm happy and that's where I'm like where I find I'm doing work that like interests me and troubles me and asks a lot of me. Like 
I, I look at the work of like Billy Ray Belcourt, for example, who um, just finished a PhD like last year and is now teaching at, at UBC and the ways in which he um, brings his academic writing, like the way that he brings um, this kind of arsenal into his creative writing is so inspiring. Um, and there are other writers who, who do that as well. Anne Boyer, for example, who's not um, traditionally academically trained, but has a real sort of research-based interest or like Maggie Nelson, for example, who does a lot of um, what she calls auto theory is it's really astounding work. And that is something that I wish that I had felt maybe more comfortable in when I was in undergrad and in grad school. Maybe it's because I didn't feel um, like I had that permission from professors or from the academic culture generally, but I think that that is something maybe worth pushing back on. That if I could do it again, that's probably what I would do. Oh, well, thank you. I oh, I do appreciate like how um, your 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 answer. Like, you, I know you had said you were rambling, but it's not like all of this is so um, helpful. And it's, I think it's I think it's good to hear for anybody like um, who is considering. Um, academia as 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 their path because I know I can't be the only one in yeah. in this in this room or even in this group. So I know you as largely a poet and and a musician. Is there something about um, poetry that you do um, or the ways in which you write poetry that you find to be like um, accessible or like what 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 do you have to say about the notion that like poetry can be hard to get into because it's um, inaccessible particularly mm. like within academia. Yeah, I think that that's a problem with how it's taught, like from the beginning. Um, I don't know if it's the best use of time in junior high or high school to be reading Shakespeare or to be reading uh, whoever else is assigned. Like I remember that uh, it wasn't a joyful experience for me in high school, reading the type of poetry that we read. And my sense is that it's because it was never joyful for the teachers either. Um, when they were in school or when they were getting their ed degrees or whatever. Um, and like, you know, I have friends now who, from my cohort, who are doing PhDs and who are teaching. And um, they're like, I was just, I have a weekly writing group with two of them. And, and one of my friends just last week was like, I am trying to find a fucking um, poem from the 17th century for my syllabus because I have to have one. Like you are mandated for particular courses to have certain boxes to fit. And she's like, I don't care about a poem from the 17th century. The one I chose for my class last semester, they all hated it. I don't blame them. Um, like, I think that there is a real lack of like intellectual freedom when it comes to uh, building these, these curriculums or these syllabi. And I get like at a high school level, level or junior high level that a lot of that has to do with the economic realities that you can't buy a whole bunch of new books every year, um, that you can't uh, assign things that aren't maybe free or readily accessible. I live downtown. There's going to be honks all the time. I'm so sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think that first and foremost, it's uh, it's a failure of how it's taught and not a failure on the part of the teachers, but a failure like just system systemically. Um, I will admit that I find poetry, not reading poetry, but I find writing poetry very difficult. Like it's not a space where I'm immediately comfortable and it's not always a space that I enjoy being in either. Um, it's, uh, there's something to it for me that I find um, really requires deep thought and tension. And I think that's a good thing. I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. And I think that 
poetry, poetry is like a unique genre insofar as it like really, it can be challenging in all sorts of different ways. And that can be intentional. Like I really love in reading poetry and even in writing poetry, like when I get to a point in a poem where it clicks and it, it, it makes sense, um, that's fantastic. But like getting there is hell. And I love reading poetry where I have the same same sort of uh, experience when reading it where I'm like I'm ready to throw the book against the wall until suddenly it clicks and then it opens up for me in these all unique ways um so I don't know I mean I, I the term accessible to me is one that I kind of am unsure how I want to hold that I don't always know what that means when people use it I think there are some people who use the term accessible to try to sort of like simplify the work that someone's done. And this happens a lot with writers of color, indigenous writers and black writers from writers of color, where, you know, somehow if, if their work is um, not written for a white audience and a, and a white reviewer is um, confused or troubled by it, then that's sort of always remarked upon and vice versa, where like a white writer is like, oh, this was, this was so simply put. And it was so, accessible to me that in itself is not always a compliment either and so like I'm really I'm, I don't know I'm interested in teasing out maybe with you maybe you can like jump back on and kind of uh we can kind of work through this a little bit more together but like I think that uh I don't know can you jump on let's let's like uh sure okay no so. I, I think I think you make an interesting point that like accessibility has in, in that way almost become like a pejorative term or like a way to demean like particularly like BIPOC authors and i remember seeing a tweet from billy ray belcourt like mom help they're calling my writing raw again and oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah and um it's interesting that it would take i guess that that connotation because i didn't think about it in that way until you said so and like now yeah it makes sense i just i mean i guess something that i think about is like how productive challenging work is and how um my most rewarding reading experiences or learning experiences like in or out of the classroom have been like deeply uncomfortable and I've really had to work through that and I think maybe maybe it's not about poetry as a genre maybe it's more about like how actually we are taught to go through the world and uh, many of us are taught like to avoid conflict and to avoid difficulty and to like seek out things that feel immediately easy and like mm -hmm. what if instead we like sought out things that were challenging and uncomfortable and sat with that like, I think yeah. maybe it's not like a way to read a poem, but maybe it's a way to read like the whole world and like how we move through it. That to me is is like an interesting question and, and how I try to kind of move through my own writing and my own reading and what it means to kind of be a person in this place. And I think, I hate to be the person who says as a society, but as a society, we kind of tend to want things to come easy. And if we, if we don't have it, you know, you, you just shelve it and you leave it alone. But I do remember like being in high school and doing the poetry, particularly Margaret Atwood's poetry um, was all of my grade 12 year, basically. Really? Um, for most of it. Yeah. Um, cool. And, you know, I, I have kind of always been of the opinion that like there, there's nothing that will kill someone's love for something like faster than bad teaching. And I think you're right. It's not necessarily like the teacher's fault. It's just the way that like the system is built up. But I do remember reading one poem that I don't believe it was Atwood's, but I can't tell you the author, I apologize. But it was written by a teacher about teaching students poetry. And they said like, um, my students want to tie the poem to a chair and like torture the meaning out of it. Whereas I want them to kind of be more like a mouse in a maze going through and finding their own way. Wow. And I think, 
it, that just it's, it's coming back to me or what I guess are your views as to like looking at at poetry like like that because I when I did that unit with Atwood's poetry I felt the same way like I it, it wasn't it wasn't clicking it wasn't working and I would sit there torturously thinking how can I write an essay on this I don't know what it means until someone would say something and then it clicks and so it's just like sitting there and stewing and I feel like where we are and how value is placed on production and getting as much done in as quick a time as possible poetry in that way might be like undervalued because you have to sit with it and it might not come to you meaningly the answer might come to you years down the road and like we don't necessarily always vibe with that or kind of how like our, our society doesn't really value that something that you can like sit and savor like mm-hmm. like like a fine wine or like a a very decadent chocolate like yeah my hope is that that is changing like i think that the generation that um you're part of and and then that i'm part of i think there's a lot more space for that kind of difficulty and that kind of thought even looking at like poetry sales across the world for the, in the last 5 years they have skyrocketed and and so there's certainly an audience for it and i and I, my hope is that like it's because there are folks who are more comfortable sitting with difficulty now than maybe there has been before and like you see that socially we're kind of in this amazing political moment wherein people are having very very um difficult conversations and and like actually sitting like i have so many close friends who are doing amazing activist work on the ground and that requires so much um attention that requires so much care it requires so much patience and these are all things these are all qualities that uh, you need to have in order to get anything out of a poem and it's interesting i i think of erin wonker's book um notes from a feminist killjoy because she talks about the ways in which um like the way that she learned to read the skills that she needs to read are the very skill same skills that she needs to employ in friendship and in relationship care and attention and i love that sort of way of thinking about reading as a way of learning how to care for others like i don't necessarily believe in this kind of middle brow idea that um reading in and in and of itself makes you more empathetic or makes you a better person i think that that is kind of wielded in in ways that are problematic and that um reinforce harmful um harmful systems as kind of as a way of sort of like self forgiving you see this a lot on like canada reads for example where they're like well i mean i so multicultural i read this book i read a book by an indigenous person i read a book by a black person and i'm white so i'm good thanks um and this is sort of like this way that canada reads instructs us to read and like but i do think there is really something to taking these like ethics like an ethics of reading can be really similar to an ethics of care in relation to an individual or a group of people to the community that you live in like that's kind of what interests me and and so yeah maybe uh through the hard parts of a poem will equip you to sit through the hard parts of you know being an ethical member of a community yeah it's definitely an interesting question that i think um particularly with how things are changing that i i'm hoping you know cross my fingers that our generation like my generation and going forward um as academics or just in non-academic fields can kind of th- sit with that and think with that more seriously now that it's beginning to kind of become more of a I don't want to say mainstream topic but like more like a, a topic that is at the forefront of more people's thinking 
going back to uh, where we are in this room of of writers and uh, and about like poetry and all with all these things in mind, what would you what would you say to like a new uh, a new writer or a new academic like someone in kind of their first year who is thinking about getting into writing poetry or getting into reading poetry who maybe thinks that it's it's a community that is a little like far out of reach or only value certain things but they still kind of want to do it anyway i guess what would you say to to that person well i would um i would certainly encourage them because i think edmonton in particular has a really unique writing scene wherein um there's just there are so many brilliant writers here who i don't think people necessarily know live and work in edmonton and i think that, that has to do with proximity to the university jordan abel marilyn demont lisa martin uh, but then we have like our poet laureate Misha Patel, who like does so much work to encourage young poets and young writers, particularly writers of color and black writers and indigenous writers. And I think that like it's I I can't even remember honestly what the poetry scene or the writing scene in Edmonton looked like from the outside because it has been thirty years or so. I'm very old, but I would uh, I would absolutely encourage them to like go out and meet these people much in the way that you did. Like, I really admire um, the way that you, uh, you just kind of like showed up one day in my mind, you just showed up one day at an event and you're like, Hey, I'm Brie, I'm here now. And that was the coolest thing. And that's something that I didn't necessarily have the courage to do. Again, it took like me kind of hiding behind prof professionalization through the CLC and whatever to sort of like make my way into this, this world. Whereas you really sort of, made your presence known and you like were like happy to be there and you were I really admire the way that you just kind of like made a space for yourself in the community and so I think I would do whatever I could to to encourage that and that's part of the work that Matthew and I are trying to undertake with the bookshop is to uh, you know in the before times we really wanted to be an actual literal physical space that people could come and make these connections and make these acquaintances I think Twitter is a remarkable space right now and, and Instagram too uh, especially in these in these days, but like so many amazing writers um, are on Twitter and they're just so fun and so chill and it's such an interesting space to like build these friendships. I don't know, I feel like this is a really trite answer. And it's like, I'd encourage them to go out and do it, but that's, uh, I don't really know how much more to say than that because um, because I think the thing about literary community at this level and by that, I mean like the level of the emerging artist or the level of like the, I guess, essentially like the non-Atwood level. It, it's a very warm space. We're not like literary celebrities. We're not invitation only. And so I would hope to find ways to convey that. It's something we're trying to do with the shop, with our events. Uh, fingers crossed we can do it again one day. It's a bad answer. Oh, so sorry. I, I have to disagree. I don't think it's a bad answer because sometimes the, the simple answers of yes, just do it anyway rings true and I think um that's that is like what we're trying to do with with this space and like less of a physical space now obviously because we're in the after times uh yeah. we're eight we're AC um after COVID oh, but <laughs> but even in this space to encourage everyone and like for everybody listening uh, yes do it that's all yeah, I have like, to say. Another um, thing that I would just like want to interject with is just to say like that also the Edmonton scene is really young. Um, so there's even this, there's not even really a generational divide. There are certainly like writers of all ages and all different stages in their career. 
but there's a really like young contingent to the writing scene. So that in itself is exciting. And hopefully you all like show up next time we, we have an event and y'all can be part of it. I, I will say if I can just be like gushy and emotional for a second, but like, yeah, like before when I was in high school, before I came to university, like there was no such thing as a literary community. I didn't know what a literary community was. Like there were, there no, were no events or no readings or anything, but then coming to Edmonton and seeing just how vibrant and excited the the community is and how supportive the community is like I remember coming to that show in the almanac and entering in and you looked at me and you were like hi Brie and I was like Jason Purcell knows my name oh, Jason Purcell on. knows of course who I, I know am. who you are why <laughs> why do you that but You're like it was now. oh thank you but no like that was really it was a very encouraging experience because it, it did make me feel welcome in the community that I was just like this second year university student, very new on the scene. And you were just like willing to quite literally let me take a seat beside you and, and, and chat with you. And I feel like that's what the Edmonton literary scene can be for everyone in this room, everyone like in this virtual room and that's also what this space just with the crew is like is is trying to do is we're trying to make space and just give like a non-judgment free zone for people to explore their writing and explore their creative process yeah like um, i said before i'm i'm really i admire so much what you are all doing here and i i wish that i had had access to it when i was uh, in undergrad and grad school i think you're doing amazing work and i'm really excited for all of you oh well, thank you Okay. So we're going to, I think, start to transition into a question period. So if you have any questions for Jason, please put them in the chat. I think we have a few. I'm just scrolling through to find them. Okay, so we have one for you, which is, uh, do you ever hybridize music and writing, um, i.e. do you listen to music as you read and you write, or how does it affect your writing experience? Always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, like I said at the start, like music is still the first place that I go. It's kind of like my home. It's where I live. And, and so, um, and so always, like I always listen to music when I'm reading. I'm always listening to music when I'm writing. I always make like little project playlists. A lot of people do this and I, I always make sure that I do the same. And it's really important to me. And like, I have all of these kind of dreams where I'm like, okay, you know, if I ever publish a book, like maybe it could be like a book launch slash like a little concert, like the ways that um, other people's work, music influences my writing. It's like, I can't, I can't even put a word to it. And like when I put out the EP early years and years and years ago, early in my twenties, I um, kind of had this like totally different take on, I, I didn't want to cover people's music. Like the manager I was working with, they were like, listen, we have this song and love for you to sing it like this other artist has sung it before we wrote it for them here's the recording like we'd love for you to sing it and I was like no I am an artist <laughs> I write my own songs thank you um whereas now and I think like again this is probably something that I learned in grad school and I'm very grateful for is like citational politics and what it means to be like this work influenced this work like this idea this phrase influenced this other piece of work and i really want to honor that in some way so anyway long story short yes 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 uh yes i love love we love that for you no, thank um you. <laughs> is there anything to share re creative process what is your approach to writing okay so again to go back to astrology taurus sun which means i am deeply lazy so lazy <laughs> 
Okay, so lazy. And then I also have iron deficiency anemia, which means I am exhausted all the time. So I have like these physiological um, exhaustions coupled with a predilection for um, just inactivity. And so uh, I really need structure in order to get anything done creatively. So I kind of gesture toward my writing group every Saturday from 10 to 11. I know it doesn't feel like a lot of time, but Saturday 10 to 11, myself and two friends get together on Zoom and we just watch each other write. And it's this great way because I also am motivated by like surveillance. So um, they watch me and I watch them and like we can't do anything but write. Like you could, but we also have this sort of like honor system going where we say in this hour, we're gonna be working on our projects. And having that kind of structure and protecting that time has been the only thing that's allowed me to kind of stay on track with the project that I'm working on right now, especially because Matthew and I undertook the bookshop this year, didn't expect COVID to come, didn't expect moving to this new delivery model that we're doing. And all of that takes like way more um, time and mental work. So I really need to do everything I can to protect my writing time. And that means that I have to make sacrifices. So like, if you could see the rest of my apartment, disgusting, uh, it's awful. Uh, like there are a lot of chores that like don't get done or get done one day maybe, but I, I really put things off because for me, I feel as though I'm not going to be like on my deathbed and looking back like, I really wish I had washed those dishes sooner. It's gonna be fine, whatever. Or like, I wish that I had like folded my laundry that week. No, I'm okay. But I am really glad that I did get a thousand words out in that session. Like these are things that for my mental health and my sense of well-being are more important. And so um, my advice would be like to, if you're somebody who needs structure to really protect that time, mark out that time, and then also be aware of the things that you're okay sacrificing and be, and, and know that you can't do it all, especially you, if you're students, oh my God, you can't do your reading and write your papers and then also write whatever creative projects you want to undertake. And then also probably work a job or um, have to like feed yourself. Like these are all things that take a lot of work and a lot of time. And it's all about prioritizing. So again, this is me giving you permission to be a slob sometimes if you need to be. You can't get everything done. It's like you can have it all, but not all at once. So uh, pick the priorities. No, I think that's good advice. And I think that is good to hear because as students, I think we're kind of expected to have to do it all at once you are um, for there, sure there is no slow down time when you're a student it is like it, it is an absolute race until december and then second term it's a race until april and that's yeah. that's very encouraging to hear from from someone who knows knows what we're going through so you have a next question for you which i guess ties into this one um how do you stay consistently motivated mm. oh my god yeah like i think motivation and practice are, are two different questions, right? So again, I cannot overemphasize the importance of structure for me. Um, that's how I get work done. But motivation, I feel as though more and more is at stake. And so that helps to keep me motivated. Like I think about, I was just talking to my friend, Lisa Martin, amazing poet about, about this recently, because I was telling her about this project that I'm working on. And I was saying like the projects that I thought that I was going to be writing when I was 20, 22, 25, even like 28 are not the projects that I have taken on or not the projects that feel suddenly very urgent to me. And she had said like, yeah, it's interesting um, that the writing projects that stick are the ones where most is at stake. 
And so for me, the motivation is really connected to that. It took me a long time to figure out what it is that you really have to say. I think there were there were periods of my of my life where I was kind of like stretching my creative muscles and, and learning how to write maybe at a stylistic level or a grammatical level. But like the things that I was saying in that writing didn't really stick. I didn't feel like I was really risking myself or risking anything in that writing. And so I wasn't very motivated. But now once I found like I've had like a series of three projects now where I really ask myself to like confront some very real things. And that's where the motivation is for me because I know now that the project I'm working on is not just like a vanity project. It's not just like, I'm going to write this book so that I can write a book, but it's like, I have this, this question that I want to undertake, or I have this problem that I want to explore further. Um, that's maybe, maybe ugly or maybe shameful or maybe um, asks me to really look at myself in a particular way. And like, that's the motivation for me. The motivation is like, yeah, the motivation is knowing that I have to show up for this, for this project intellectually and emotionally and mentally. Um, so that's not really a how to, because I don't really know how you find that except for wading through like periods of not being motivated or not writing the thing you want to write or feel you should write. And like, that's also okay. Like you don't have to be motivated all the time. You don't have to be productive all the time. Um, that's also something that's like probably important to work on unlearning. And it certainly was for me because we live in like this capitalist hellscape um, wherein every moment needs to be a productive one or every project that you undertake needs to be one that you can monetize in some way or that can help you in your career. And like, it's also okay to be unmotivated and unproductive. And those like those moments when you're like, I'm going to sit on my couch and watch Netflix for two hours or like even lay on my bed and just look at the ceiling and listen to like whatever and not do anything like resisting those feelings of guilt. All of these things are, are necessary, productive pockets of time that will help you ultimately toward whatever project you do end up undertaking. So I guess, yeah, I guess I would say, uh, you know, schedule out some time for yourself to be productive and then uh, also be okay with not being productive, be lazy, you know, all of that time is precious, important lifetime. We have to live our lives. No, oh, I think that's a really good like tip that um, I think, yeah. And as I said earlier, especially for young people who kind of are, or at least in my experience, like feel very pressured. Like you have to be motivated all the time and you have to always be doing something. And, you know, like all the great writers have bursts of motivation and they write the whole book in one sitting. And like, that's just not true. Mm -mm. Um, yeah. And I think it's like, it's not sustainable to believe like you will burn out so fast. Oh my God. Um, yes. Oh, so we have one about your music career. Um, oh, hello. Yes. Jake asks, uh, where can I find the EP? Well, actually you can't because when I asked to be released from my contract, uh, they scrubbed the EP from the internet. I don't think you can find it anywhere. It's if you can, I'd be very interested to know where you found it. Um, but as far as I know, it has been completely scrubbed. So like, it's not on iTunes anymore, not on Spotify anymore. Like it's, as far as I know, it's, it's nowhere. So I have like a few physical copies, um, on my shelf somewhere that I hide behind books. And I have like, I have the MP3s, but I don't, uh, I don't think you can get it anymore. And I'm frankly, I'm grateful for that actually, because like I said, it was not, uh, not a very great experience for me creatively. It just means, you know, that that door closes, but another one opens. Big time, yeah. Yeah. What is one thing you wish you knew uh, when you were just starting out as a writer? 
I think one thing that I wish that I knew when I started out as a writer was that it was that I probably wasn't going to be a young superstar writer and that that is also an okay thing. Like, I think we're in this moment and it's, this has been a cultural moment for like decades where there's like this sort of uh, obsession with youth. And if you haven't accomplished something by 25, you've failed. Good luck to you for the rest of your life. Might as well die. And there have been a lot of books published by really young writers that have gone on to do really amazing things. And you can't help, I think, if you're working in a similar field as these people to think like, if I don't do that, am I going to, what's the point? And what I'm kind of learning now is that it's okay to be, I'm now 30. It's okay to be 30 and not have a book out yet. It doesn't mean that you're a failure and that what you have to say down the road isn't going to be valuable. So that's something that a lesson that I wish that I had um, learned earlier on, because there is so much pressure to, to produce young and you'll never be a wonder kid if you're, you know, so few of us are. And that's something that's important to me. I don't know if any of that resonates with any of you because you're all very young and you probably all will go on to be wonder kids. But um, <laughs> if you don't, it's okay. You don't have to do, you don't have to do it all right now. And I think like my friend, um, Vivek Shrey is a really good example of this, of somebody who uh, didn't meet her creative goals or her creative dreams uh, at a young age or even at all. And that's like, she really publicly demonstrates what it's like to um, grapple with that and confront that and then um, continue to make amazing stuff. That's something that I wish I knew. And I, I want to pass it on to you and just give you permission to like, take as long as you need to take to write a project and to to do whatever you need to do. It's, there's no hurry. You're doing great. Everything happens in its own time. I really believe in timing. So release yourself of that pressure. It's both uplifting and, and sad at the same time. Like Vivek Shraya feels that way. And Vivek Shraya is like one of, she's one of the most accomplished writers um, of this time. And just to know that, wow, like she felt like that too. Um, totally. Right, yeah. and it's, like, it's about like, what I love about her and her work is that just there's like this brutal honesty. And I think we need more of that. Like you, we, we kind of have been orbiting around this, but we need more representation of failure. We need more representation of like redefine, redefining success for yourself after failure. Because, you know, culturally, again, to be like, we live in a culture, but we do live in a culture that like only values success. And we only show our successes on like social media or whatever. And I really value what she does, which is she is like so open about times when she has not achieved what she's wanted to achieve. And uh, it's helpful for all of us to see that. How is editing poetry different from editing prose to you? Oh, oh, what a cool question. Um, editing poetry is, well, just like writing poetry, editing poetry is really difficult for me. Again, like, I think it's very interesting that I continue to write and publish poetry because every time I sit down to write a poem, I'm like, this is the last one. I'm never doing this again. This is the worst because, uh, there's something about it that just, it's always, I'm always like resisting something. And, and then by the time I finish the poem, I'm like, that was fucking awesome. That was like so productive because again, being in tension with myself and with my thoughts and with my language ends up being really, um, really satisfying, but I hate it in the moment. And with editing, editing, it's really hard too, because I see so many of my faults and so many of my 
failures and my laziness in writing, but it's also a space where I can like push myself forward without the pressure of like producing in that moment. Like I've already done on the page, whatever it is I thought was the poem. I don't have that pressure on me anymore to, to keep creating. So for me, like editing poetry, it's really about like refining. It's really about like breaking the poem even more. Whereas prose is like refining in a way of like polishing. So I guess I think of like poetry, I'm not usually trying to polish a poem. I'm usually trying to like disrupt the poem. And then prose for me, I am trying to polish it up. I'm trying to be like, is this said? Also, I guess I would say in my prose, like in my fiction, I always tend to use um, theory and research as a, as a sort of element in that. So I'm often thinking about like, am I building off this theory in a way, or like, am I breathing life into this theory through this scene or through these characters or whatever? So like, yeah, I guess I'm always asked different things, but if I were to kind of like distill that answer, I'd go back to what I said before about breaking and polishing. Those are the two different things that I hold in my mind when working in these different genres. And then nonfiction, it's pretty, um, pretty similar to prose for me. I think I like that idea of disrupting a poem rather than, than publishing a poem. Um, there, there's like so many of the poets I admire are doing really complex, difficult work. And I asked them, I'm like, how, how do you do it? And across the board, it's like, it's in the editing process. You don't always get there the first round. You know, mm-hmm. you very rarely get there the first round. I do find that too, like with poets that I admire, or even like former um, classmates within like my own poetry workshops, so just looking at at their piece and being like, oh my God, like, how are you this good? And a lot of the times they've just put it through like many, many, many drafts. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that is also like something to consider is like drafting is exactly that. It is a process and a long yeah. one. Yeah, um, it is. One of our members said uh, one of the things that they find difficult about getting published is the issue of rejection and feeling as though their voice is not the quote unquote right voice. Uh, are there any suggestions that you have for overcoming those feelings of self-doubt in writing? That's the thing, isn't it? Rejection is real and it is constant. And it's something that I um, face all the time, constantly, not only in creative writing, but I I certainly face it academically too, because in grad school, you're always applying for all these grants and some of them come back successful and some of them don't. And you don't know, you don't know why. And what I learned there that has been helpful to me in my creative life is that A, you don't always know who is on the jury for a prize or for a publication. Um, and so that's one thing to consider is that like there are actual people with their own likes and dislikes and biases that are there on the jury. You don't know who they are. You don't know what their investments are. You don't know what their like hopes are for this project. So you can't control that. And then other things that you can't control are things that some of us may not even know that these people have. So quotas, for example. So like for uh, an award like Shirk, probably for other like creatively for like anthologies and stuff, is that there are marks that these people want to hit. So they want to make sure they have this many applicants in, working in English and this many applicants working in French who they're awarding. This many people from BC universities, this many people from Alberta universities, this many, many people from Manitoba universities. And so it like it breaks down from there. So that's again something that you can't control because they have quotas they need to fill. They need to be giving out this many awards to Alberta students and no more, no less. Um, So that's something else that's at play. And then um, page count is something else that's at play. 
So like this is something that I've encountered um, with journals, like getting a poem published in a journal. Sometimes it's not about you or your poem or how good it is or whether or not it fits the theme or whatever, whether or not it's excellent. But like sometimes it's like that they literally just don't have the room. They have the budget for this many pages. They have this many ads that they need to actually retain space for. Uh, they have the introduction that's this long. They uh, did commission some pieces or they asked people especially for these things. And so by the time they get to like the general submissions, they've only got this many pages to fill. And then maybe somebody's written like a really amazing, say you've written a really amazing long poem and they're like, fuck, this is great, but we literally don't have the space for it. And that's all it comes down to sometimes is like they wish they could publish it, but they don't have the space. So I think something that helps me with rejection is sitting back and being like, it could be bad. It could be a bad poem. And it could be that they didn't want my poem because it's bad. Or it could be that they didn't want my poem because there wasn't room in this issue or because there were other poems that like are equally as good as mine, but maybe speak to the theme a little bit better. Um, you know, like I try to take myself out of it because, because I know from what I've learned academically from actually being like involved in publishing that like you have to make really tough decisions and it doesn't feel good for anyone most of the time. It, all it is is just like this poem now is free to go to another home so you can find another home for that yeah but i know it doesn't feel good it definitely doesn't feel good it feels disappointing definitely feels like a reflection of you personally and your talent but oftentimes it's not that so i would say sit with that disappointment and be like man this sucks i really wanted to be in this issue and then the next day be like well what's what's next i think that is important to remember um because i think also, I was told by um, another one of my writing profs that said, like, speaking as someone who worked on the other side, like, editors get, like, these giant, giant piles of, of, of works, and, you know, maybe they only have the budget of, like, 20 of them, so it might not be, like, the, the quality of the work, it's just they don't have the pages, and then also speaking, mm -hmm. like, within our um, anthology project that's, that's coming out, like, when we were starting to do the edits and, like, making the very hard decisions of, like, whose pieces are we going to accept, like, that is something we came across of, like, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with this piece, like, this is a good piece, but we just don't know how it fits, and, like, the the unfortunate side is that like all the rejections are are rejection and you don't kind of see how how close you were or what kind of thought processes went into um yeah. went into it yeah yeah like you can't and i get the labor at so many of these like literary magazines is often on volunteers who don't have the time to like personalize every rejection or say like you were really close um or like we really loved your work it's just came down to this. We can't ever know, but like, it's, I think, as you say, like just kind of thinking about all of the different steps along the way and all the different people who have to make these hard decisions. Like it's, uh, yeah, I, I love your addition and I totally agree. How do you think the education system can improve teaching English and poetry? That is difficult. And like, it's hard for me to speculate because I'm not an educator and I, don't really know what's going on at the ground level. I certainly like, of course, have friends who who are teachers and I see their frustrations and, and I could say like, of course, like funding, that's the most important thing. We need to be funding schools better and giving teachers resources. That's not going to happen because I just say it's going to happen. Like, you know, it's, it's hard to speculate, but I think working on easing curriculum in certain ways and allowing teachers to use different resources I think like if I had access to like YouTube in the way that 
it exists now when I was in high school and had access to like Ocean Vuong reading poetry or had access to um, Eileen Miles reading poetry, like these videos that I could play and see poetry in, in action and see people who make poetry from their daily lives, that probably could have uh, changed things for me. Like I admit to not enjoying poetry in high school too. So, I mean, I don't know. It's a really tough question to answer because I don't have any institutional power. I can't make any changes happen. And But but those are things I'd like to see. I'd certainly like to see more funding. And yeah. Weirdly enough, I had a similar conversation over the summer about teaching poetry and, and English and just as someone who is more recently, I guess, out of like the high school system. One of the things that we were taught like with poetry and one of the quickest things that I had to unlearn when coming to like a university creative writing program was being allowed to have opinions on things. Because when I, th- I feel like when poetry is taught, if you have like a particular teacher that you're um, that, that feels like their way of looking at it is the only way of looking at it, it will absolutely kill your interest. But I also feel like we were only allowed to really critique things, especially with Shakespeare. I find like Shakespeare was the worst offender for this. But we were only allowed to critique things if they were positively critiqued critiquing so all of our um all of our essays and all of our commentaries were like how does Shakespeare do the themes and what are the motifs and how does this get across and how does the imagery make his point but they were never given to the other side of the argument for kids who are like but I don't like this play and instead of saying no you have to and you have to analyze like this I feel like the better option and again I'm not a teacher but the better option might be to say like you don't like it and that's valid why don't you like it and can you put that in a way that articulates your points and you're like I don't like it because the themes don't make sense because it this character does something that completely undermines the point and I feel like that's just as valid but again that's that's just that's just me rambling time and I'm not a teacher by any means either okay good you guys got some good questions coming up all right thank you we have what advice would you give to someone who is looking to branch out into their own local writing community okay well in this moment it's got to be digital right so so I'm assuming you have a twitter account or an instagram account and that is where you uh you make your introductions and it's uh, I don't know I don't know about you but I am very like really introverted um, I'm not comfortable socially and so the internet is a space for me to initiate friendships or initiate kind of modes of familiarity with people so that whenever and if ever we do meet in person I have this kind of foundation already set I don't have to worry about it quite so much so if you are like me, this could work in your favor. And um, so it's hard to be like, I don't want to say like jump in on people's conversations on Twitter. Maybe don't do that. But like if people are tweeting ideas, if they're tweeting jokes, if they're tweeting like links to things, it's a space of engagement. So you're absolutely welcome and invited to to take up the those, those engagements and, and introduce yourself, maybe not formally like, hey, I'm Jason, I'm tweeting you right now. But like, engage and build those friendships it's so for me it feels so much less weird online for some reason than than in person um and then go from there or right now we're like we're in in an interesting time because a lot of like literary festivals tend to happen in the fall and spring so in the fall uh it's usually lit fest in edmonton uh, which is the nonfiction festival there's Starfest, which is a St. Albert Readers Festival. So Litfest, nonfiction, Starfest is often fiction-based. 
Uh, in the spring, there's the Edmonton Poetry Festival. And these are great opportunities to really get in the mix and also have a chance to hear writers who you maybe aren't local to you and who maybe you wouldn't hear before or take a workshop with someone, uh, a writer who's visiting. And these are all great ways because, you know, everyone is kind of, especially in a workshop setting, everyone is kind of like unsure what's going to happen, right? Like everyone's feeling vulnerable because they're about to either have their work workshopped or admit that they are struggling with something in their writing and writing is already intimate and vulnerable. And so it kind of like lowers people's defenses in a way because everyone wants to, I think, connect. Everyone wants to uh, feel supported. And so if there are like online workshops, which I know that there are with, with these festivals, joining them could be another way of kind of like meeting your peers. While it's in my head, I really want to say this, um, something that I think is really valuable about your group and this community that you've built here is that it's so important to uh, support work laterally. Like I'm really grateful to have friends in kind of all stages of, of publishing. So some of my friends are just starting to publish their first poems. Some of my friends write best-selling books that kind of sell out across Canada. So I can see kind of all these different stages of, of a writing career. And what I really want to encourage and what I think is so important is, is to do this kind of work laterally with your peers and like lift each other up because there's probably, I think that there is a tendency to want to reach up and impress somebody who is already established, somebody who's like doing amazing things and it's like they are doing amazing things and it's okay to want to like to be there. But what I've learned in my own journey is that the way that you build community and build network is with people who are at the same stage as you. And that's where exciting collaboration can happen. That's where exciting experimentation can happen. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that because I've seen, I see it a lot on social media too, people trying to uh, become BFFs with, with writers who uh, are more established and as a way of kind of getting their own work off the ground. And it comes off as like, it's really kind of obvious what you're trying to do. Whereas if you like, this is something that me and Matthew did together. Like if you find somebody who's like at your stage, who's like also publishing their first poems or has also got, like got their first chapbook out, like that's who you work with because these are your peers. These are the people who are going to follow you throughout your whole writing career and your whole life. Like these are always going to be your people. So I would say get on social media and find those peers and strike up a convo, take some workshops, like just jump in. And Bree is a better person to ask than me about how to do this. Because like I said, I really ask for permission in a big way. And what I love, Bree, about you is that you, uh, yeah, you just, you knew where you wanted to be and you went after it. That's amazing. That's like, I'm not courageous in, in that way. And I really admire that. I think you flatter me, but thank <laughs> you. To give my two cents on the question, like, I'll, again, a lot of the things I have to say are like things that aren't really going on now because of, because of everything. But I just started like um, going to poetry reading series side of like creative writing courses, because I found like creative writing courses are hard to get into and like they're time consuming and they're also courses. So being a part of a group like Crew or like McEwen has Bolo Tie or even like Yeg Writes is another like Discord server online that you can be a part of where it's the same kind of deal it's a bunch of um, college level writers just getting to know each other and workshopping um, each other's stuff but then if once poetry readings start like getting back up and going again and glass bookshop has had a few 
that I went to the the all of reading series at the almanac although the almanac doesn't like it moved and I think even now like there's virtual readings online so yeah again like if you're on if you're on Facebook if you're on Twitter or even Instagram there'll be links to uh, like virtual poetry readings so I encourage you to go out and do those because like that's a good way to start like interacting and also like um don't don't be shy to to talk to people I know like it's it's hard to talk to people I feel that I have anxiety about talking to people but something that always comforts me is everybody else is as scared of each other as you are um everybody's in kind of the same boat but more often than not you'll find that you have a lot in common and you'll you'll find support rising tide lifts all ships in our like level of of writing like it's it's so easy to say go out and strike up a conversation but like that's about the easiest way i can put it yeah i know Uh, mostly there how do you deal with a creative crisis uh as in not coming up with new ideas at the very moment of writing Mm. yes yeah i have certainly been there and that happens it happens to me more when i have a lot of pressure on myself so it did happen a lot writing my thesis i would kind of reach an impasse that I couldn't um, I couldn't just see think myself through or see myself over and um, in those moments that's when I adopted this sort of belief that reading time is also writing time and that cooking time is also writing time and walking time is writing time Um, and so all of these other tasks that I needed to do or wanted to do did help me in the writing it was always going on in the back of my mind. I always still had the idea. It's like not like when I close my laptop, I stop thinking about the project. It's always there. And so in those moments when I was just paralyzed with uncertainty or, or whatever else, I'd walk away. And a lot of writers say this, a lot of people say this, that, that like getting up and leaving is sometimes the most productive thing you can do to help yourself through that problem. And I, you know, maybe I would, pick up a book and read for two hours and the answer wouldn't be there in that book but maybe maybe there was a rhetorical technique or maybe there was a a narrative technique that like could help me see through the problem that I had or I'm cooking and I'm not really thinking about the the work front of mind I'm chopping onions or whatever or like trying to deglaze a pan and that distance helps me to see things in a different way frees me up a little bit because like there have been i have spent so many hours sitting in front of like a half written sentence being like what's the rest of you like i don't i don't know and it just for me it becomes a sort of cycle that i can't break out of and so uh so that's what i do in creative crisis now like if i am in a moment where i'm like halfway through writing and the idea is either just like just left me or i really don't know where to go forward I tell myself that it's okay again to to use my writing time differently right now and read or go for a walk or write or play video games or whatever it is that that I want to do in that moment. Again, it might be like an anti-capitalist sort of uh, procedure, which would be to uh, release yourself from the need to produce all the time. It's not a good answer. It's not an original answer. <laughs> Walk away, try something else. And it doesn't always have to be. Because like, I mean, tried and true advice, walk away, try something else. Hello, I'm just sometimes, co-signing. So, sometimes the 
the answer does like come to you if you just like give it a break for a while and so, sometimes it sneaks up on you too sometimes you'll just be like on the nintendo switch and you know light bulb will go off and you're like oh for sure um we have a fun one for you uh do you have any pieces of guilty pleasure media guilty pleasure media hmm i don't really feel guilty about the things that i enjoy or consume for example i love britney spears i've always loved britney spears she has been like always for as long as i can remember she came out with baby one more time when i was eight and since then I have just adored her and who she is and what she has kind of gone through and all of these things. And so I, without, like, I, it's almost muscle memory now for me to type Britney Spears into the YouTube, um, into the YouTube search bar. And so I'll watch like all of her music videos or like old concerts um, or whatever. Like, so something about her that really makes me feel happy like like I was when I was a kid and all this stuff um I watched like I rewatched Buffy the Vampire it's like the only show I watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer actually just over and over again so that is also something that brings me deep comfort probably for the same reasons probably very nostalgic for me um so while I don't feel guilty about those two things they are oh Heather Mark I love Heather by the way I've been like looking at her picture the whole time so nice to see you um Spike or Angel I am an angel person through and through. I don't know. I feel like Angel was my first crush when I was a kid, when I was like seven or eight years old. And before I knew what a crush was, I was like, this man is beautiful. And um, so I've always loved him. I don't know. I know that it, the relationship is not one to emulate, but neither is hers with Spike, you know? So I'm not going into the show looking for models of relation. Um, I love Angel. How about you, Heather? Can you just like chime in? Spike Angel. It's very important for me to know. I really liked Spike, but I think that the way that they ended the series was necessary so that Buffy could continue to grow. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. <laughs> okay, with you there. Thank you. Thanks, Heather. Oh, so nice to see you. Thank you, Heather. I know I've mi I've missed you, Heather. We had a we had a workshop last term and I I miss y'all. I miss all my workshop buddies. <laughs> Um, and that, thank you for the, I think that was a very insightful comment on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I, yeah, everyone go watch if you haven't I, seen it. I haven't. I think it was just a little bit before my time, maybe, or I was just like, not probably a lot before your time. It's okay. <laughs> I know that I'm not young. I, I mean, we're not so far. We're only, what, 10 years apart? Yeah. Ten age? All, yeah. Only a decade. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I do. I know I still like, I'm still in the young person category when I say I was born in 2000 and people go like, screw you. Like, I'm no. like, that only just happened. That was like yeah. last week. What do you mean? <laughs> so it feels like that. So Duncan asks, I really relate to what you said about feeling like you can't start something until you're officially certified to do it. Do you have any advice on getting past that feeling? Oh, oh, that's such a good question. I don't think that I'm there yet. I think I think I still need a lot more therapy to to be okay um, giving myself permission to do things. Like I think Bree, when you talked about being in high school or whatever, not really feeling like you were allowed to give your opinion on Shakespeare or whatever else, it's still very much how I am. And there are some things in life where I am absolutely certain and um, 
very comfortable saying so. Like, so this is like in the, in my, in, in my life as a bookshop owner, decisions are very easy for me to make. I feel very comfortable asserting my opinion in when it comes to like things that I think the bookshop should do or should not do, or um, that's like a comfortable space for me. Maybe it's because I'm projecting that onto the bookshop. It's like this kind of I'm triangulating it somewhere between beside me and Matthew, there's this thing. Maybe that makes it easier. But like when it comes to myself or my own work, it's much more vulnerable space and it is much harder. And like, even at 30, it's still something that I'm working on. Um, I was 28, 27 or 28 when I defended my master's thesis. And I remember sitting in what was Leva and what is now I think Ace Coffee Roasters on campus with my supervisor, Matt Hurley. And she looked me dead in the eye and she was like, you've written a really great project. I know that you could talk about it, but I worry that you won't. I worry that you won't give yourself the permission to answer the questions. I worry that you won't allow yourself to show up in that room as somebody who's vulnerable and as somebody who may not know all the answers to the questions you're given, but like, I'm worried you won't try anyway. And like, Nat is very interested in psychoanalysis. She sees an analyst herself and she, is very perceptive. And so she, um, she said all that to me. And it was like the first time that anyone had actually articulated so truthfully what it is I feared that people already saw, which was like that I'm really uncertain about um, myself and the work that I'm doing. And, and that was very helpful to me, you know, even though it was like, oh, shit, like the jig is up is how I felt. But like, it was very helpful to me because it was the first confirmation that people saw this too. And so um, I don't know that I have the answer just yet, but I think I will say that like, if you are part of a writing community or if you're part of a group of writers like this group here, or even like for me, I consider myself as in, in a group of writers, people all across um, North America, actually, there are people kind of all over the place who I feel very much in communion with, but like these people do want to support you. And if you say you write a poem and you send it out and it's published and you still kind of have this feeling that um, you have somehow not earned it or you've somehow like you're going to be criticized for it or whatever, like I would say step back. These people who accepted your work or who want to read more of your work or who are excited about your your writing or your creative journey. Like these people are all people who um, make these kind of decisions every day. They read things that are good and bad every day. If they're putting their belief in you and they're trusting you, like be okay with that and go forward with that. It's a lesson I'm still trying to work on myself. Like a friend of mine, for example, is editing um, an issue of a, a magazine and just guest editing it. And he wrote to me and he's like, hey, would you, would you mind submitting some poems I'd love to include you in. The, and I pushed back at him. I was like, are you sure? Like, why would I do that? You know, like this was like two weeks ago. Why would I be like, are you sure you want to reach out to me privately to invite me to submit to this magazine you're editing because you want to include me? Are you sure that's a good idea? Like getting, get out of your own way is what I would tell myself now, two weeks later, I'm so much wiser now. You can tell I don't have an answer for you, but I'm still trying to very much work this through myself. But um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I really don't have an answer. All of this rambling has been me trying to process. Bree's like, oh my God, shut up. Um, but 
I, I guess what I could say is that I totally see you. I know how hard that is. I know how it feels. It doesn't feel good to doubt yourself that way. Um, you're not the only one who does. I totally get it. Um, if you can find people who help you to see yourself and your work really authentically, then trust that and trust that you're doing very good work that is going to find an audience of people who appreciate it. Um, but I totally know how hard it is to get out of your own way. I totally get that. So I'm just going to be in solidarity with you through this, I guess. I can't offer a how-to. Just I'm here with you. Got it. I think that's very honest. And I think it's just, it is nice to hear like somewhere else, like talk about that and like feel the same way. And also I will never be mad about your yeah. answers. <laughs> do not apologize for rambling. I'll never be upset because uh, I do the same thing all the time. Do you keep your work in progress to yourself or do you share um, every little bit of progress to others along the way? I'm, uh, I'm a sharer. I believe in sharing, not like super widely, but, um, and not every step of the way either. But um, I do believe in, in having a handful of friends who you trust, who understand your work, who themselves are careful readers. And I, I show, I have a few friends like that who I do show my work to. Like I, I try to avoid showing my work to people who are just gonna tell me it's great all the time because they like me or they aren't able to give the type of criticism that I need. Um, and I'm really lucky to have found the people who will sit me down and be like, all right, this stuff is working here, but this stuff is not working. And I would rather know that while I'm working on it than like three months later or six months later when I finished the whole project and I'm ready to send it out places only to find like all of these flaws. Like I really, I benefit from having my work uh, looked at along the way and I certainly do the same for those friends too so like they'll send me stuff that's in progress and it's it probably is a lot like workshopping in your creative writing classes I've never taken a creative writing class I've never even been to like a writing workshop but um but I imagine it's like that so like you just create like when you no longer have the structures of university around you to kind of make these things happen you can you can create your own little workshop groups and, and to me that's very helpful so why are my answers so long i could have just been like yeah i show my work sometimes yeah i do thanks thanks for your question you know what it, it's like we talked about earlier you got to hit that word count you got that academic um, <laughs> that's it, yeah. background yeah. my um, uh, my partner yeah. justin i don't know I, he tweeted something a few weeks ago where he had like, I didn't notice I do this, but he noticed that like, I'll say something in the most complicated way possible. And he tweeted one day, like a quote of something that I had said, I didn't realize that I'd said it. And he was like, do you have to hit a word count or something? So it's very <laughs> funny that you say that now because verbally I'm trying to do that. How do you get a copyright for your work? Okay, so anything that you write, you already have copyright for. So that's good you're not usually going to like need to produce any documentation it's very infrequent that your work will be like published without your permission or plagiarized or whatever if that were ever to happen like say that were to happen to me i could show a screenshot of the document info that says like created on this date as a way of saying like no i started this like a year before it appeared here or something um, if i ever needed to handle a dispute but essentially you own the copyright to anything that you publish, or sorry, that you write. And then if you submit it, 
to a literary magazine, for example, most magazines will um, pay for the first North American serial rights, which means they have the rights to publish it uh, for the first time in their publication, which is often distributed across North America, and then copyright reverts to you. So they only have the rights for the first publication, then it's yours again. Um, for my chapbook, same deal. So like a lot of the poems in that chapbook had been published before. So those journals had first publication rights, they reverted back to me. I published the chapbook and then the rights reverted back to me for all those poems again. So like my publisher doesn't own those poems. They just kind of did me the kindness of, of getting published. And then, um, so if I were to publish them in a book, then the, um, I would own the copyright, I think. However, I'm now thinking about like certain friends of mine who have like done academic work on, um, on particular writers who have had to ask publishers for permission. So I think with, it's hard to say, I'm not yet at the stage where I've published a book, but my sense is that the publisher retains the right for fiction and maybe not for poetry. It's hard to say, I'll get back to you. It can be difficult. Like writing may be an art, but publishing is a business and it's <laughs> full of all kinds of business navigation. Yeah. What was your publishing journey like? What advice do you have for writers who are looking to publish their works in the future? All right. My publishing journey, it really is um, another example of why I think community is so important and like finding a writing community. Um, my very first publication was actually a, not a review, but like a kind of essay about Elizabeth Smart, who I had planned to write about um, for my master's thesis. And that was, um, the editor was somebody kind of found, this is embarrassing, but I used to make YouTube videos about books and had found my YouTube videos and um, liked them enough to invite me to write for their um, publication. I did, and that worked out for me. And, and then my next publication was um, an anthology published by the University of Alberta Press about Canadian writers. And that came about because of my work at the Canadian Literature Center. So the director was working on this anthology and invited me to co-edit it with, with her. And so that's another example of like somebody believing in me um, and somebody wanting to give me an opportunity. And then an uh, instructor who I had in EFS in my undergrad uh, is the reviews editor for Canadian books. Uh, the Canadian Book and Periodical Society, it's hard to say, I don't really remember, Book and Periodical Society of Canada, that's right. Reviews editor there, so asked me to review um, a book my first year of grad school, so I got that publication. And then my first poetry publication was actually Matthew, who published me in Glass Buffalo. Um, and really gave me a shot there. That was the first time I'd ever shown anyone a poem. And that's only because I was like, look, Matthew, I'm writing this poem. Could you work, like, look at it for me, workshop it maybe? And he's like, I want to publish this. So it was like about kind of, I guess for me, the lesson that I learned is to like find people who are doing interesting, exciting things, be vulnerable with them. And then you'll kind of find along the way opportunities that feed you and and yeah, and like the rest of the time after that first publication, is, that's when I started like actually submitting uh, traditionally to CV2 or Malahat or whatever. And um, in that way, what you do is you put together like three to six poems. If you're submitting a poem or if you're doing fiction, they often give you a page count. You write a little cover letter. Uh, you make a submit submit submittable 
okay, submittable account, and um, you follow the guidelines. And maybe this is something like an interesting, or not interesting, but the important thing to say is like every journal has their own submission guidelines and follow them to the letter. So uh, that's an important thing. Because if like sometimes we were talking about rejection earlier and about like quotas or page count limits, another thing that can um, eliminate you from consideration right off the bat is if you don't follow submission guidelines. And that's a form of gatekeeping that I don't necessarily agree with, but it's one that exists. So for example, for me, like if I were to ever do any sort of uh, any publication, I probably wouldn't have very strict submission guidelines because it's a barrier for so many people, but don't uh, shoot yourself in the foot. Uh, that's my publication journey. I've uh, got, I guess another example of community is like Marilyn Dumont is editing Best Canadian Poetry this year and selected one of my poems. And like, she's somebody who I worked with at the CLC for a number of years. And somebody who's been a tremendous supporter of my work. And, and this example of support is, is huge for me as a, as a poet and as a writer, like to be included in this anthology of best Canadian poets of the year with people like Billy Ray Belcourt or Amber Dawn, or like that's, I, I cannot say enough how important it is to find people who you can, um, who you can support and who will support you in return. That's the long and short of it for me. Well, congratulations on that. Like that's that's fantastic and well deserved. If oh, if I do well, say so. Thanks. <laughs> Heather and I were in actually Marilyn's class this past term, and like Marilyn's lovely. She's a she's the a best. lovely person. The yes, best. Ab absolutely. So I think we have two questions left. I think that's all we're gonna have time for. So I'll start with the first one, which is, what kind of atmosphere do you like to write in? Uh, do you like listening to music, writing with at a specific place or at a specific time of day? Hmm. When I was writing my thesis, I really preferred writing at night. After dark, it was very quiet. I live alone. So um, that was that was sort of the atmosphere that I thrived in writing that particular project. Um, that project required a lot of deep thinking. It was a high pressure project because it was in order to earn a degree. I felt a lot of like pressure there. I had um, a supervisor who I really respected and a committee who I really respected, who I knew were going to read this thing. Anyway, the pressures were such that like the time that worked for me was when it was like dark and quiet and I could just really focus on the task at hand. Now, given the new circumstances of my life, running a bookshop and that I, I go to bed at like 10 o'clock now because I'm just so tired. So by the time the sun sets, I'm like, cool, me too. Um, so now I get my writing done. Saturdays are my day off. So Saturday mornings, 10 to 11, I have my writing group. And then I try to write or read for the rest of that day. Um, I like don't do any cooking that day. I don't do any cleaning that day. That day is like my day for the things that I know if I weren't doing them, if I wasn't writing, if I wasn't reading, I would feel just lousy. So I really protect that time. So now, I guess all this to say, the atmosphere has totally changed. Now I treat it a lot more like a job where I have a meeting in the morning and then I have a series of goals that I need to hit in the day. So like I give myself, I want to hit a thousand words a day and I make that happen. So either I'll be sitting right here. This is where I do my morning meeting. Sometimes I'll be on the couch. Sometimes I'll be in bed, but Saturday is my day. So I found something that works. Always listening to music, yes. Uh, often like drinking tea or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's quite nice. I think I think it is nice. It's nice to like give yourself kind of like a set time and just 
having the boundaries of being like, nope, this is my, this is my time. This is for me. So I think this is going to be the last question of the day. And before I ask it, because I know who asked it, crew does not condone the use of any illegal substances. And if you do use legal ones, be responsible, please. Because if you could have a chat and or get high with any artist in history, alive or dead, who would it be? It's a good question. So the answer would be Chris Knight, who is already a friend of mine, K-R-I-S space K-N-I-G-H-T. His work is to me, like it's been a really generative experience getting to know him and his work because it kind of came about at the right time. I learned about his work during my master's and he paints these really sort of soft, pastel-y portraits of queer men. And my master's thesis was about queer sexuality, fear of sex, sort of anxiety around sex. And these are all themes that he's working with in his paintings as well. And it couldn't have happened at like a better time. It was very synchronistic. And um, so I've only like, I've hung out with, we've had coffee once when I went to Toronto last summer, because that's where he lives, of course, in Toronto. It's where he paints and hung out in his studio and had like a nice coffee on the rooftop terrace. And I just find his work really inspiring and enlightening for where I am in my own kind of thinking about, about queerness. And I, um, yeah, I have a piece I'm pointing at. It. I have a piece of his on the wall right now. And um, I've been working on a suite of poems based on his uh, paintings. So for each painting, I write a poem. So one of them is the one that Marilyn picked for the anthology. So he's one. And then there's also a writer, oh, sorry, writer, uh, an artist named uh, Scott Soak out of Brooklyn, who um, I'm actually working with his art for the nonfiction project I'm working on right now. And he does these amazing um, paintings of cakes that have phrases written on them. And I'm the project I'm writing right on right now is about uh, my experience with like internalized homophobia. And a lot of his paintings have to do with experiences of internalized homophobia, what it's like in the queer community. He writes about like the ways in which this is very true of like my generation. I don't know about yours. Um, you can tell me if that's true or not. But like, for me, representations of queerness and opportunities for community, queer community happened on, in online spaces, not in real life spaces. I didn't see queer people in my daily life um, until I was in university. So he's another artist who I would love to, I've never met him, would love to sit down and talk with him and learn about him and his process. So those two, those are two authors who, authors, artists, why do I keep saying this to artists who I love? I think that brings us to the end of the talk today. So thank you so much for sitting down and having this discussion. It was wonderful. It was wonderful to hear from you. Thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to have a chat with a bunch of um, up and coming um, writers. And thank you to all of you who were able to make it out and make time in, in your day and to come in and chat with us. You guys are an, an awesome audience. Thank you all so, so much. Yeah, thank you. I'm very grateful. I had so much fun. I, this was so nice. I hope that I get to meet you all in person one day. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was, this was great.